2: Warning to our listeners. This episode contains audio of graphic violence and police brutality. Listener discretion is advised. This is Intercepted. I'm Jack D'Isidoro, lead producer for Intercepted. When a police officer shoots and kills someone, and we don't see it happen, can we trust the police to investigate themselves? That is what Antoine and Tammy Bufford were asked to do. Their son, Cortez was shot and killed by the St. Louis police in 2019. The police kill more people per capita in St. Louis than in any other American city. 72% of these people are Black, like Cortez. Nearly two years later, the city is still investigating Cortez's case. No charges have been filed, and the Buffard family is still looking for answers. The Chicago based Invisible Institute recently partnered with The Intercept to examine the circumstances of Cortez Buffard's death. The resulting investigation, reported by Allison Flowers and Sam Stecklow, is called The Fatal Tunnel A Police Killing in St. Louis Remains Shrouded in Darkness. Here's the story.
3: This is a recording of an incident occurring on the evening of December 12, 2019, in the area of 535 Bates. The first portion of this recording, we're going to be monitoring the radio transmissions on the Mobile Reserve K-9 channel. The time is twenty one fourteen.
4: Big hey guys, where are you at? Uh,
5: north, north, north. He's got a gun.
4: Where are you at?
5: We're on Bates. He's running north. He's got a handgun. Sorry, he's running south.
4: Jason Grand? Don't worry, oh, I don't know if <laughs> you were mine. Got shots fired. I'm putting out eight. shots fired, shots fired, shots fired. Shots fired. Where are you? They don't ever see you in base. Be covered. District one is expediting. Do we have a description? Are my officers accountable for it? Hey, we, we,
1: need, we need EMS
4: urgent. For an officer or suspect, Marty officer suspect. or suspect. For the suspect, no, Clear. it's okay. <laughs> EMS's responding district ones
0: and route are all mobile officers of for. The four foot nine inch space between 535 and 533 Bates Avenue is remarkably dark, like a black hole or a tunnel with no light at the end of it. The narrow grassy space runs about 32 feet before it dead-ends into a wood fence. That is where 24-year-old Cortez Buffard, chased by a man with a gun, couldn't run any farther on that Thursday night around 9.30 p.m. Eight shots were fired. Five, possibly six of them, hit Buffard's body, front and back, from his left fingertip, to the right thigh and upper back. Three shots to his face and head, one in each cheek, and the fatal shot to the upper left forehead. The medical examiner who performed Bufford's autopsy ruled the manner of his death a homicide. That part is no mystery. Bufford's shooter has always been known to police because he is the police. Or as reports refer to him, Officer 1.
5: Okay, uh, Officer 1, my name is Lieutenant John Green. Uh, this is Sergeant 12 Officer. Uh, we're members of the Force Investigating Unit, and we're here relative to the incident that occurred at 5 35 on December 12, 2019, around 9 22 p.m. Um, I also want to like you to interview
0: Two people, a white police officer and a black man, each carrying a strong internal narrative about the other, are both reportedly and legally carrying guns. They both carry something else, too trauma. In the blackness of the gangway, their fears collide. As space and focus narrow, It's hard to discern who exactly is in control of their actions anymore and who is captive on a neurological train of events with lethal momentum, an incident mired in political and sociological implications where perspective dictates who plays the role of the victim and the offender.
4: I also
5: if you can just start from wherever the beginning is and then go all the way through it. I will not interrupt you. And I will have some follow up questions. Afterwards. Yes, okay.
3: Uh, first off, um, I'm assigned to a specialized unit called the Mobile Reserve Unit. Uh, we patrol the whole city of St. Louis. That particular day, uh, we were patrolling close in the area of the Dutchtown neighborhood. Uh, focusing as a recent uh, shooting uh, two days before uh, this incident uh, where a 14 year old was shot at the uh, Bates gas station.
0: Law enforcement officers like Officer One are taught to preempt, to shoot first, to make it out alive in a society flooded with guns. In the close space between the two houses, there was no cover for either of them. And within our current mode of aggressive policing, this space. Between perception and reality, can produce and will continue to produce tragic, absurd, and avoidable outcomes.
2: I'll just have you start with uh, introducing yourself.
0: My name is Allison Flowers, I'm the Director of Investigations at the Invisible Institute.
2: Can you describe to me the circumstances which led Cortez Bufford, and who all identify as Officer One? What what were the circumstances that led these two people to converge?
0: Cortez was out with a friend, just hanging out, writing as 24-year-olds like to do. And he and his friend stopped at a BP gas station in the southeast part of St. Louis. On his way out of the station, Cortez went to the back of the store. Maybe he was smoking a cigarette. Maybe he was taking a leak. We don't really know. So that's when two men in a Tahoe who were across the street in a vacant lot pulled up to Cortez and confronted him.
3: While we were stationary, we were stopped. I observed the suspect. He was standing in the front of the, uh, of the store. Once he recognized our vehicle was there, he walked from the front of the store, and as he decided to walk around the corner, where there would be what we call an alley, that was kind of suspicious to me and uh, my partner. That's Officer Two, and that's when I saw the uh, suspect with his legs like, spread open, like he was like peeing in public in position. Uh, rolled down the window, and then at that time, I said, "Hey, stop peeing." He looked over back at me, adjusted his, uh, I guess, the waist area, and that's when he turned around, he's looking right at me, and now I can see him a lot better. I can see the, what he's wearing, and I see that he has a, uh, a bag that is underneath of the jacket over it. That right there kind of indicated in my mind that he might be carrying something. Because in my training experience, I, I've made several, several arrests with guns and narcotics with these type of uh, man bag satchels. I said to myself, well, I'm going to go out and talk to this guy. At that time, I got out. He immediately started running.
0: Cortez was afraid of the police. He was a trauma survivor of police violence. When one of the men got out of the car, he immediately took off running. The officer almost immediately draws his weapon.
3: He's running briskly, fast. He was holding to the front of him, which is another indicator, in a sense, that he was carrying something heavier. My partner, Officer Two, drove to off. He didn't see him, and he ran into the patrol car.
0: Cortez and the Tahoe collide. There are different accounts of what happened. Either the Tahoe hit him or he hit the Tahoe. But then Cortez gets up and keeps running.
3: And that is when I can see the extended magazine that is hanging out, uh, pointing out of the back. So as I'm chasing him, he ran towards. There was a uh, tall fence. The fence was taller than him. He could not get over the fence. I
0: so he runs into one gangway. He can't clear he the fence. He out scuffles out. with the officer.
3: Knowing that there is a firearm there, I quickly grab a hold of his shoulder to try to take him down on the ground. He resists and grabs onto my arm and swings me off.
0: And then he runs across to the other gangway and presumably couldn't clear the fence again.
3: He stopped, turned around, faces me again, grabs a hold of to the firearm and the, uh, the bag, and now he's facing me like this, in this stance with his left arm out like that.
0: And that's when the officer, without a flashlight, in a completely dark gangway, said he saw Cortez... Who had no record of violence, point a gun at him.
3: And then before I know it that I'm backing up, I see him pulling the firearm from the bag and then turning over towards me.
0: And the officer said he feared for his life that this man he had chased down into the gangway and pointed his gun at was threatening him. And so he shot him.
3: And then, at, And then at that time, Take a moment to conduct yourself. Okay. I'm sorry. <sighs> I know it's pointing a gun at me. The first thing I pull my gun. I'm left-handed. I hold the gun, and I run. I'm aiming with my sights and I'm backing up and I shot the gun, shot the gun as loud as I could. And then, fearing for my life, I shot my rounds and I'm just backing up, shooting, backing up, backing up because there was no cover at all. There's no cover, the two houses right there. And I got all the way to the, uh, the corner of the house and then I'm have my gun still drawn and I'm still pointing at him as he fell He fell on the ground and I look over the corner of my eye and I see Marty in the patrol vehicle and I yell at him, get EMS, get EMS, I don't know how long but we decided we gotta put handcuffs on him. And then I decided, you know, if you guys aren't putting handcuffs, I'm gonna put handcuffs on him. So, and that's the time Nash said, no, 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 back up, back up. And then that's when they pushed me away from the, uh, where he was at?
2: What were the police doing at this BP gas station in the first place?
0: At that particular BP, two days prior, there had been a shooting. Overnight in South St. Louis, police now say a teenager who was shot is 14 years old, not 15, as first reported. The teenager was shot in the neck near a gas station on Bates near Virginia. Police say he is in critical but stable condition. And so these police officers were patrolling the area for that reason. Both officers belong to this unit called the Mobile Reserve Unit. MRU is a crew of roving tactical officers that responds to crime hotspots. They're not assigned to any district. They can go anywhere they want in the city. And this unit has been around for more than 60 years. These guys are known as the cowboys of the police department, the jump out squad. They have a history of unconstitutional police practices. So lots of complaints over the years of descending on people, harassing people, holding guns to people's heads, heavy handed tactics that operates like a blunt tool on violent crime in St. Louis. Cortez Bufford himself is a survivor of police violence. He was tased and beaten and kicked by officers during a traffic stop where he made a legal U-turn. Watches a group of St. Louis police drag a young man from his car during an arrest and then later one of them walks back to the camera and turns it off.
6: Everybody hold up, we're red right now, so if you guys are worried about cameras, just wait.
0: Red is police slang for a rolling camera and just like that, the video ends. It's only coming to light tonight because the suspect in the car is suing police. The police were responding to reports of gunfire and 18-year-old Cortez Bufford was refusing to get out of the car. He's kicked and shot twice with a stun gun. Bufford's lawyers are suing for an unspecified amount, alleging excessive force. That was just four months before Michael Brown's death. And he earned a, a small settlement against the police department, about $20,000, I believe. But his lawyer warned him that he would be a target in the future.
2: So tell me who shot and killed Cortez.
0: Cortez Buffard's killer is Officer Lucas Roethlisberger. And his identity as the shooter was not publicly known until our reporting. Lucas Roethlisberger is in his mid-30s. He's married with kids. He's been on the force for about 13 years. What's unusual about this case is that Officer Roethlisberger has his own very traumatic backstory. In 2010... He was shot by a citizen during a traffic stop, and he almost died. He was in a coma, had strokes, he could have been paralyzed. It was a very traumatic event for him and his family. After the shooting, he received the Superintendent's Medal of Valor. He was named Officer of the Year by his colleagues. He's actually stayed out of the news, despite having a troubling record of complaints alleging abusive interactions with Black citizens. So in one 2016 complaint, he's accused of threatening a teenage boy who was standing on his porch, and he threatened him with tasing if he didn't come down and talk to him. In another complaint from 2017, Roethlisberger was among a group of officers accused of ripping dreadlocks out of a man's head and kicking in his girlfriend's door and then forcing this man to dress in her clothing, presumably to humiliate him. So, Roethlisberger certainly has this very troubling track record with Black citizens, despite his own traumatic backstory and being a, a celebrated police officer in the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. The two officers in this case were interviewed about a month after Cortez's killing. What happens in St. Louis is when the officer is ready to talk, that's when force investigators can interview him. And so the two officers were interviewed separately, but on the same date, a month after the shooting.
5: Right. Start from the beginning, um, Officer Wallace, and go all the way through it to the. Oh, okay. uh, on that evening. Um... Me and Austin were are just assisted. We just finished assisting
0: and uh, you know that really uh, allows ample uh, time to potentially align and inoculate their accounts from criminal implications. And so the two accounts are actually strikingly similar in detail, particularly around establishing that Cortez had a gun and that the two officers both saw the extended magazine of his gun.
5: I believe Officer 1 told me that he had a satchel at that time under his uh, jacket or or coat, and it appeared to be, like, heavy, like it had a weighted object in it, possibly a firearm. When he gets up, uh, his bag is kind of open, his his arms are up, and that's when I can see what I thought at the time was the the extended magazine of a handgun sticking out the top of his bag. So I immediately get on the uh, radio and I start telling him, "Hey, he's got a he's got a handgun, guys. We're chasing this guy. He's got a uh, pistol."
0: What happened between Cortez Bufford and Officer Lucas Roethlisberger? Only the officer lived to tell. But even if there had been eyewitnesses, the gangway was too dark to see anything, which is what his partner says.
4: Uh, <coughs> How was the lighting in that
5: gangway? It was very dark. Okay. Did you have to use your flashlight to to see down like Yes, it? I did. Okay. When you first got to it, the the uh, gateway, did you have your flashlight on? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. How far could you see? I cannot see in the gateway. Um, it was very dark. I, I I can't recall. I dropped I remember dropping my flashlight as I got out the car um, to go run to Officer One and. I don't remember how far I see down. I could definitely tell that it was somebody laying down. On.
0: And to an extent, with what Roethlisberger says before, force investigators kind of circle back, point out that he said it was really dark and that he didn't have a flashlight.
3: It was dark back then. Did you have any light or anything? No, I did not have a chance to uh, retrieve from my, my flashlight from your, my my pants. Okay. Uh, because the fact that he had a firearm was was. More important for me that I had control with both my hands free.
0: And then they say, well, how was your vision in that? And he seems to register that point of emphasis in the interview. Um, his lawyer certainly did. His eyes kind of dart up to see what Roethlisberger is going to say and do. And Roethlisberger says, I could see. I could see.
4: Gangway. I know it's pretty dark. Yes,
3: okay. how, how, was, how was your vision in that? I can see. I can see. Okay, okay are you sure? I'm sure. I'm okay.
5: Sure. Um, which hand was he holding the gun in? His right hand. What were you thinking at that time?
3: I believe that he was going to pull out a firearm and point it at me. Is mm-hmm. it was something you were expecting? I was hoping that it was not gonna happen like that. I thought back there at Virginia, he would have given up there. Mm-hmm. I thought back there in the other two houses that he would have given up there. Mm-hmm. But it was just getting more serious and it was it was getting worse and worse. The fact that he kept swearing up at me mm. that when you're pulling what I knew it was a firearm coming from the bag that he was going to point a firearm at me and shoot at me.
0: Officer Roethlisberger says he saw Cortez turn and pull his gun out of his shoulder bag and point it at him.
3: Did he fire any shots? That, to my mind, I thought he did shoot at me. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I thought he was shooting at me too. Okay. Because it was a weird of the sequences of it. it was, I remember pop, 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 and it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't a smooth pop, 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 you know, you know. But I was also backing up, retreating for, for cover. So I, I do, I believe that he was shooting at me.
0: And he didn't know how many shots he fired at the time. He also thought that Cortez was shooting at him.
3: Was that do you think he fired first or did you fire first? I think we were both about the same time. At the same time. Okay. All right. And you didn't have any cover.
0: I had no cover. So his testimony is already unreliable because we know that Cortez did not fire at him. But we're supposed to believe that Cortez pointed his gun at him and that he could have seen that in the very dark gangway without a flashlight when his partner looped around after the shooting and called to him, got out of the Tahoe and approached the gangway and called to him. He said, Luke, where are you? Where are you? Because he couldn't see him. It was so dark.
5: I'm driving on Bates and uh, I got all of my windows down and I'm out the windows just as loud as I can. You know, where are you? Where are you guys? And he says, I'm over here. I'm over here. I'm, you know, EMS now. It was dark, so I ran to him and I asked him if it was okay And he didn't, uh, EMS or an ambulance, and he said, no, he said he's fine. He said, call for him, no, uh, ASAP.
0: And furthermore, there were two other officers at that point alongside the Tahoe when Cortez fell on the ground. They were interviewed within 24 hours of the shooting. And so it's interesting that neither of those officers noted a gun protruding from Cortez's bag at that point. It's only the shooter, Officer Roethlisberger, and his partner, who were interviewed a month later, who note the presence of Cortez's gun. Let's keep in mind that these investigations start out with the police investigating themselves, with the force investigation unit inside the police department. And they're basically tasked with investigating their colleagues and their peers, Meanwhile, we conducted our own investigation from September 2020 to publishing this story. The officer's account of Bufford facing him when he was shot is really complicated by Bufford's position on the ground that we see in sketches and in photos after having fallen forward onto his stomach. Officers disrupted the scene. They said that they rolled him over from being on his stomach, and at that point, that's when they saw the gun beneath him, they reported, and they kicked it out of the way, and then they handcuffed him. So when force investigators got to the scene, they don't really have a clear picture of how the scene originally was, but according to the officers who came to the gangway after Roethlisberger shot Cortez, Cortez had fallen forward onto his stomach. That detail is important because Cortez was shot front and back by the officer. That indicates that he may have been originally running away and shot in his back when the officer shot him. We reached out to the police department to give The officers every opportunity to respond to this story and the police department said that as to your request regarding the case involving the two officers mentioned the department does not speak on prior or pending litigation they were not going to avail the officers to speak to us we you know reached out to the officers and their associates and their shared lawyer and we were not able to get any sort of response Louis has the highest rate of police killings in the country. That's per capita. And that means that there is a backlog of police shooting investigations. There's been no resolution in this case. Cortez's case is sitting in a pipeline of investigations. The family is in this purgatory of unsolved cases. Everything is in bureaucratic limbo. And Cortez's case isn't alone. More than 20 other police shooting investigations have yet to receive a ruling. And since then, it's just been sitting. Uh, I'm
1: Tammy.
6: It's T-A-M-M-Y. My husband is Antoine, A-N-T-O-I-N-E. Buford, B-U-F-F-O-R-D.
0: I first talked to the Bufford family on the anniversary of Cortez's death. It was December 12th, 2020.
4: We are extremely close, me and Cortez. Uh, fix his breakfast every morning, you know, make sure he eat, make sure he got back and forth to work when he wrecked his car. Those are the things that I look for to spend that kind of time with him. It's just hard, you know. It's just a hard thing to deal with, process every day.
6: We would always, you know, sit down and let them know that although they've taken an oath to protect and serve, there's still some police officers out there that just look at you by the color of your skin, kind of informed him what
4: his rights was. We have to have these talks with our kids to try to get them home safe. Why do we have to have these talks? It still don't protect them, even though we're giving these talks, no matter what they do, they're still shooting our kids, you no know, matter whether they got a gun, they don't have a gun, or, no matter this, where they coming from.
6: It's simply because of the color of their skin. My son was at the gas station. He had just went in and made a purchase. He wasn't doing anything wrong, but he feared for his life because the police constantly harassed him, so he ran. And the officer's first thing is, he pulls the gun and say, oh, I fear for my life. How do you fear for your life if he's running away from you? At what point was there a threat? At what point was there a threat?
4: Cause it was like it was he was target practice. Okay. It was like they were just doing it, did him as target practice. The way he was shot—that's how you can tell the way he was shot. So, yeah. but what if you just shot a man in the leg and shot his finger off and then shot him twice in the cheek? Why are you still shooting this man? What what is the, what is the point? Are you still shooting this man? So that tells you something real fishy about that. You know, it's it's heartbreaking, it's, it hurts, you know. How you handcuff a man you done shot eight times? Eight times, you know, it's, it's terrible.
6: That police officer needs to go to jail. He does not need to be on the force. You took an oath to protect and serve the community. You did not take an oath to be judge, jury, and execution.
0: We really need to scrutinize this account from the officer who said that Cortez pulled a weapon in the second gangway, and that's why he had to shoot him front and back and fire eight times because he feared for his life. We have to scrutinize this account given that he wasn't using his flashlight to see and his partner who later joined him said it was too dark to see anything and you know the other reason to scrutinize this is the officer thought things happened that did not happen he thought Cortez fired at him and he didn't you have two people who have two different lived experiences and Very strong internal narratives about the other. This is not just another police shooting investigation. This is also an exploration of a larger theme, which is, you know, the interaction of these parallel traumas of officers and those they police or rather over police. And in this case, you have two deeply traumatized individuals. They're both reportedly and legally carrying guns. One of them chases the other down, and they end up in the darkness of a narrow gangway with catastrophic results. Same
3: time. Okay. Oof. All right. And you didn't have any cover? I had no cover. Just the two houses right there was open. It was, you know, they call it the old a fatal tunnel, basically. Okay.
0: Actually, the term for it is in law enforcement lingo and close combat training is fatal funneled. But the officer in his interview says fatal tunnel. Tunnel vision is is such a precise way of, of thinking of what happened because Cortez is fleeing for his life and to the extent that the officer did in fact fear for his life if he believes he saw Cortez point the weapon at him or as he reports, he believed that Cortez even fired at him and we know that that didn't happen. But in that sort of tunnel vision... Who really is in control of their actions anymore? It was really an absurd law enforcement occasion that, you know, this was not a police encounter that needed to happen. Bufford was maybe urinating behind a gas station. Police themselves are sometimes a threat to public safety. Especially if you are a Black citizen like Cortez Buffard. And if they had never stopped, you know, the world would have kept on turning, even if he was urinating behind the the gas station. The world would have kept on turning. Cortez would still be alive if the police had just left him alone. It's just common sense to reduce these trivial interactions with law enforcement because... They produce deadly outcomes again and again. And that's what happened with this pedestrian check on December 12th, 2019. This pedestrian check swiftly turned deadly.
2: That was Allison Flowers of the Invisible Institute. The story, which she reported with Sam Stecklow, is called The Fatal Tunnel, A Police Killing in St. Louis Remains Shrouded in Darkness. You can find a link to the story in the show notes. And that does it for this episode of Intercepted. On June 30th at 6 p.m., The Intercept and The Invisible Institute are hosting a live virtual event featuring Allison Flowers and the host of the podcast Somebody, Shapiro Wells. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is me, Jack DeZidoro. Supervising producer is Laura Flynn. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Quan Mixed Our Show. Our theme music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Until next time, I'm Jack D'Isidoro. Hold
1: up. What was that?